Hello and welcome back to Bourbon Barrel Talk. I'm your host, Scott Minton, and we are having a great time with uh, our friends from Zach Cooper. How are you doing today, Zach? Pretty good. Good. I appreciate you having us on. We're so glad that you are on here today. We're we're going to learn all about barrels today. Now complete because Jessica's taking a selfie in the (laughs) middle of absolutely. I really look forward to that. Well, well, that's kind of the good thing about this. We're we're gonna we're gonna cover new barrels completely with Zach, and we're gonna find out what goes into making a barrel, what it takes to make a barrel, like what type of different barrels there are. We're, we're gonna cover all that, and then Jess, you're you're in the barrel industry too, aren't you? I am. I am in the used barrel industry. Used barrels. And used barrels. That's what H and A is. That who you are for? I do H and A barrel management. There you go. Cool. Cool. So, well, anyway, we're gonna cover barrels. Because that's something that people have been asking about. They're like, well, hey, get, give us more details on that. And we're going to kind of We have had a deep. lot of inquiries about it because throughout the course of our podcast, we go through, right, people share different barrel picks with us. We go through different regions. And everyone's like, what really makes some of these picks so different than others? And everyone preaches the barrel that it comes from. So I feel like a little education on that would be great. Yeah. 100%. And that's where Zach comes into play. Absolutely. I know nothing about this. I know enough to be dangerous, so I'm excited. You I'm, don't I'm, know I'm, anything I'm, to be dangerous. Yeah, sure I do. Okay, but but I'm gonna say I'm gonna start off with my my favorite question, and this is one that you know I've always feel like is uh, where do you get the best wood from? Like, there's always been rumors. Like, personal that, question, buddy. Well, no, I'm <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but like, I, I've I've heard rumors that like Missouri has the best oak, or North Carolina has the best oak, things like that. So like, you're in the business. Like, if you're making barrels, where Wait, do you he's like in to the get, business? No, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> where do you where do you get where do you get the best wood yeah so we're located in atherdenville kentucky which that's pretty centrally located about 10 miles south of bardstown and we're sourcing white oak logs from 150 mile radius around our location so there's a few reasons because in our opinion that's where the best white oak comes from uh the kentucky hardwood forests are rich with white oak and for us that's where we're trying to source from logistically it's very difficult to be able to pay somebody to haul from very far away so there's a cost element to it there's a quality element to it if you go too far north um, there's less white oak in some regions um, but you have tighter grain Uh, so there's different elements of your taste profiles to come through uh, similar south you get wider um you get wider grain and uh different taste profile so different regions offer different taste so, profiles so, so let's dive in a little bit on that so when you, when you talk about grain and you talk about wider grain versus thinner grain things like that so those are basically the rings of the tree is that is that the way i'm reading into that yes that's correct okay so that has to do with how much moisture is getting into it drought seasons not drought rain things to that nature that's what kind of that goes into that piece is that right yeah so it's a lot of your uh, how long your seasons last. Uh, so for your growth seasons up north, there's less sunlight. There's less of a summer period. So your growth time is shorter. Uh, down in the south, you have long, uh, longer summers. You have exposure to a longer growth period. So that in turn gives you um, a wider grain. 
Gotcha. So that gives you a, more of that. So so dive back into that piece. So with with moisture, right? So like I've heard that you, whenever so you moist. have a drought, <laughs> it, so it is so moist. So when you have a drought <laughs> versus a very wet season or things to that nature, how does that affect the rings of the tree? And how does that affect the wood that goes into the barrel in that in that capacity? Yeah. So the climate, the uh, access to water, that'll all, that'll definitely impact the uh, growth ring structure. And, um, you know, whenever you're looking at a tree that you're cutting down the rings, it could be a 60, 80 year old white oak tree. So there's plenty of fluctuation in the climate trends over that time period. So, um, each tree in each region, you know, really varies. So that's kind of what makes each barrel very unique. Yeah. It's all built out of different trees. So you can get some unique profiles out of individual single barrels. Gotcha. I think that's so cool because then it's almost like it's luck of the draw that some of that stuff blends well with different mashes from different distilleries. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's awesome. I mean, it, it's really cool to see how all of that plays into effect with, I mean, right. Looking here, there's probably 120 different bottles from different distilleries. And it's insane to see that so many of them have barrels from the same cooperage and they taste totally different. Yep. And the and the mash bills aren't that much different, right? Like when you look at certain I mean they're yeah, they're pretty much the same. Yeah, a lot of them are very similar in, in capacity. But even even if you just take somebody, let's just hypothetically say let's take Old Forester for example, right? And I know they they do their own barrels, but let's just use them as an example. Like they every barrel just tastes different when you get a single barrel when you go into the rickhouse and you try stuff from them it's just that's the way it yeah. is it's just different and things to that nature so defining march like i, I watched a, a, vi- a video one time that jess did not that long ago on instagram and I'm talked sorry, about which one of the million videos did you it was watch like, well it is I was, my job to produce content absolutely for people it, it, i'll be honest with you i lo- <laughs> this was my favorite video you've done in, in in a long time it had to do with the markings on the barrels mm-hmm. like or was this and this means this so how do you guys mark your barrel so that way people know like if somebody's walking through a rickhouse and they'll be like oh dude that's a zach barrel like what 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 does that look like yeah so we mark on our rivets uh with z for zimlick family and then we also put a uh zach stamp onto our barrel as well so that way it's represented when it's laying on its side in the rickhouse as well that's okay. pretty cool. So that way you can see it if it's if it ends up being a top bung or a side bung, you can see, right? Who, exactly. Which is awesome. Yeah. I, I do like, there's a barrel here. No one can see it because this is voice only. Right. But there is a barrel here and the rivets do all have Zs on it. And I think it's really cool. I will say I can like walk by barrels now and be like, is that your barrel? Because the Zach barrels do look different. They look a lot like Brown Foreman's barrels. Um, and they're, Zach they're went, built different, huh? Well, they're... <laughs> Okay. Yeah, they're just, Zach was like, I may not have the prettiest barrel, but does it leak? No. Um, but like he, when it's a new barrel, you can tell because they like mark the bung stave or like right. there's like little pieces of char here and I can just like see it and be like, oh, that the shape of that barrel looks like Zach's or it's brown formants. I'm like, I can't really, gotcha. I have to get like very close. But the rivets like wear off, I feel like, over time. That's so, so odd that I brought up Old Forester then because they're very similar. That's funny. Huh. Yeah, it was Zach's grandpa that started out at Brown Forman. Oh, okay for his whole entire life and career. Um, so that's why they, that was actually my next question. How did, yeah. how did you get started into the barrel business, man? Like, yeah, you... it all started with Bert, my grandfather. So he started back as his first job out of college working for Brown Foreman Cooperage. So 
sorry to sorry to talk. How many how many old dudes do you hear like oh they went to college and then they went to go work for Brown Foreman or Philip Morris a or million like, people like a billion people in the Louisville market like right. they all went to go work for these companies like they got these degrees to do something and they end up working for a he, Cooper. He was a he or, was an engineer like a mechanical engineer and the way that Zach has told me is like he was either going to go to Florida right yeah. and then Brown Foreman was like there are no girls there it's a military base like stay here (laughs) that's so funny so i'm sorry go ahead continue yeah so he got started at brown foreman and then throughout the years he worked his way up and eventually got to be uh vp of engineering over brown foreman and then also president of jack daniels oh wow and then just casually yeah. yeah, I'm gonna start as a pogue here, and then oh yeah, I run Jack Daniels, no big deal. Yeah, there's a bottle they gave him. Did we do we have the bottle, or is it? At, it's at his house, and yeah, Bert's still it. alive. He's 93, 94. Oh wow, that's yeah. amazing. He's still with us. He still gets all the emails. Oh yeah. Um, but they made a bottle for him. But Brown Foreman makes you retire. So. Yeah. So at age 65, they forced uh, they forced him re- to retire. He came back a couple times when they were trying to like cleanly transition to um, other leadership. Yeah. Uh, for the next phase for Brown Foreman. And then, so his passion had always been in the Cooperage industry and the stave milling industry. So he ended up starting Zach Cooperage with my father. So after work each day, they would go down there, start trying to get equipment in place, start getting the operation up and running. And eventually uh, we got it going in 1990. Right. As a stave mill. Yeah, so we were originally just producing staves, primarily for like the export markets, like Spain, Portugal, France, for different wine barrels. And then we would hold back the bourbon grade stuff for ourselves until we got enough equipment to actually manufacture the barrels ourselves. That's awesome. Gotcha. And, and we got th- it all started. So then was your was your stave mill always Zach Cooperage then? Technically, it was Zach LTD, Z-A-K. Limited. So where did that name come (laughs) from? Because if I recall correctly, it's a little older than you are. Yeah. Yeah, Zach was named after the coverage. Yes. (laughs) It's spelled differently. Yes. Common question. Um, So uh, our last name is Zimlick. Yeah. And we are located in the old Atherneville distillery. It It was most recently one of the four Seagram's plants. So being located in Atherneville, Kentucky... Uh, we figured we would take the Zimlick family and Atherneville, Kentucky, mash it together. So Zimlick's Atherneville, Kentucky Cooperage. Huh. Mm. That's pretty cool. I will say the, the word. first time I've ever heard that. <laughs> it is funny. That's when I first met Zach. I'm like, your name's Zach, but how old's the Cooperage? Like, what? Um, a lot of people don't know what the word Cooperage is. I have learned this. As I've been, like, people, even in the industry, so a cooperage is a place where barrels are made. I was talking to a girl who, um, her daughter's, like, dating someone who works at the cooperage where they're at. And she's like, oh, you mean the sawmill? Because it's, like, a stave mill. It's, like, they're cutting wood. And so they refer to it as, like, a sawmill. And she's like, I had no idea what a cooperage is. But the cooperage part is, like, where the barrels are raised and stuff. So, yeah, cooperage is, like, not a word that, like, we know in bourbon, but not a word that people, like, get intuitively. (laughs) So let, let's get into Learned two things there. What what makes a barrel cost what it costs, and then what makes a barrel unique? You know, like obviously you've got the different cuts, right? The different styles of wood. Um, char levels is probably a big thing that some people are in toasting and all the stuff that's you know hot to the market. But tell us a little bit more about that piece of it. Yeah. So starting off with 
how barrel costing works. Um, there are different pricing structures for, say, your Appalachian woods and your Ozark woods. So regionally it will change, but for the most part, it's relatively consistent across the varying forest markets. Um, however, it's mostly based on the barrel being primarily the white oak, all based on whatever your market white oak price is. Um, from that point on, everybody has their overhead and similar, you know, similar associated costs. So, yeah. and, and how long their air drive has a big piece too, right? Like I hear that some people like they, they rave that, oh, ours has been air drive for 18 months. Ours has been 36 months. I've heard all kinds of different things like that. How does that play into that? Yeah. So that definitely has, uh, that has a pretty sizable effect on both the cost and the, uh, quality. So for us, we're, we're air seasoning for approximately six months for our standard barrels. Yeah. However, we do several, um, we'll do experiments <laughs> with people. We've got 12 month air season. We've got 18 month, 48 month. You know, we have quite a range. Oh, that 48 month is tasty. 48 months. Yes. Hmm. So what, what, what's the longest you've done or heard of from, from anybody? The longest that we've ever tried was eight years. Oh God. And, uh, it was so good. Yeah. It was a very unique. That's what, 96 months or something? It was a long time, but uh, we that had had. Sounds tasty. Yeah. Well, we we had tried some, some. Where were we at? Um, we had some over at Neely's, I believe. No, we were in. Oh, that was at uh, Stumpy's. Stumpy's. Yeah. Stumpy's. Yeah. Yeah. What That's did a they, great What name. did they put in it? Can they say, can you say what they put in it or? As far as like what kind of yeah, like uh, what kind of juice went, went in it? it? Yeah, uh, it was just whatever they were running for their standard juice, and huh. uh, yeah, it was it, it was, was pretty it was pretty. I I liked it a lot actually. But you don't make money when staves are sitting out there all day. Oh well, yeah, <laughs> no, I get it. I get I mean, that. Fair, I just, yeah. I'm that's, just that's curious, eight years right? until you have to recoup all those costs. Yeah, yeah. And I and get that. You can't, yeah, you you really can't make that's it. A, that's a three thousand dollar barrel. <laughs> yeah, no, you're no, not. I, I will say, as far as barrel pricing, which you have told me a lot before, is the price. You know, the price of barrels is going up, but a lot of that has to do with like the the interest rates and the housing market. Oh, 100 so Zach was like, you know, people aren't laying hardwood floors they're not renovating their houses so landowners who have this wood are not putting their wood up for sale because they're not getting money for any of the wood they're only like the only wood that's bringing money right now is american oak and you can't just go and cut american oak down you have to cut the whole track of wood so they're like well we're not going to sell it so the logs themselves are way more expensive than they used to be so when you're buying having to buy logs all the time like the price of barrels are going up yeah so the economy yeah, lots of different factors there. And one of the overarching themes that we've seen over probably the past decade even, it's not a very attractive job right now or over the past 10 years to get into logging. Right. It takes a lot of money. It's very labor intensive. And you have big droughts where there's just no money in some of those species. So... Uh, it makes it pretty tough when only a few different species are really bringing in enough money to, you know, keep your logging crew together. So that's super interesting. I mean, there's so much that goes into it that none yeah. of us realize. Yep. So does 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 the char level affect? Like, do you charge more for a char one or a four or in, in what five is the max? Right, alligator char or something of that nature. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no difference in it's all pricing. Gotcha. Yeah. We uh, we work with all of our customers to get whatever their spec- 
specified char levels, toast levels. And for us, it's just a matter of setting the dials on all of our charring. Toasting is done all on timer. So for us, it doesn't make a difference. We're just trying to make whatever our distiller, whatever profile they're trying yeah. to achieve, we'll, we'll achieve it. Which for. I think is really great because now, I mean, right with the vast expansion of the bourbon market, I mean, people want to have the ability to customize every single part of everything that they make. And so if they can say, I remember there were some guys who were like, I want to level three and a half char barrel with toasted head and split staves and all this stuff. And people can do it nowadays. Cause like you said, all it is is setting a couple, adjusting a couple different settings. And I think it's great because now you have expanded all these flavor profiles and palettes out there to have more drinkers come and try your product. So I think it's really great that people can do that. Yeah. And everybody wants to have something that makes them unique. So it's a great way to differentiate yourself from whatever bottle yeah. is next to it on the shelf. Right. So some of the new th hot things I see are like, I I've seen, uh, I don't remember where I was at, but I saw where the staves had like little gashes cut in them. Like yeah. Little grooves, the little uh, grooves and yeah, stuff like that. We tried those at Stumpy's too. Yeah. Or Sounds like we need to go to Stumpy's. So, yeah, to oh my gosh, it was great. So he had two barrels in the Rick house side by side, filled the same day, the same distillate. And Zach had given him like a regular barrel and then um, like one of the wavy staves or yeah, groove, groove staves. Stave. Yeah, the groove staves. Which one was better? Oh my God, the groove stave. It was pretty, it was Phenomenal. a pretty awesome side by side analysis. Like being able to compare the two right there in the Rick house, it was like, wow. There's such a distinct difference here. It's really, like, yeah, I, oh, I was crazy. That's crazy. awesome. But Zach said he was like really trying like hard a couple of years ago to like sell any barrels. Like, hey, try this, try this, and people were not interested. So maybe there'll be a resurgence. So with the groove stave, so did did you find that the color was massively different? Because obviously there's more char that goes into that barrel because of the grooves. So there there was a little bit of difference, not only in the color, but so you get about a 15% increase in surface area exposure when you have the grooving process done. Okay. Additionally, you have a gradient that's created from like that heavier char on the peak, then the softer toastier exposure in the valleys. So it kind of creates this, you know, unique profile structure all on its own. Oh huh, yeah. So you get kind of those sweeter notes from like that toasting piece and then you get some of that. That sounds so crazy. Yeah. So it was very flavorful. Never even thought I was about that. Very impressed with it. Now huh. it's time to go to Stumpy's. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it was a fun day. Yeah. So my wife would kill me if I didn't ask you this question because this is the one thing that she hates about bourbon, and she always gives me shit oh, about it. The one like the, thing that it, she it really hate? is. It really is. It's the one thing. She talks about the sustainability the, of bourbon oh. and yeah. trees and the Absolutely. growth and things like that. She's like, why haven't they done this? Why? I'm like, because that's not the American way. Like the American, I mean, bourbon is literally a law now, right? So what's your opinion on how sustainability works, right? Like as, as sure. many barrels and, and stuff that we're making at this point, I mean, you're seeing thousands and thousands and thousands of, of juice getting laid down every single day. Are we planting enough trees? What are we doing? What, what's, what's going on in that market side? No, that's a great question. It's a very important question too. So right now with all the expansion of everybody it seems like everybody's you know doubling their capacity for distillation and it's all got to go into a barrel at the end of the day so right now what we're kind of seeing is there's not necessarily a shortage of actual white oak out there it is being able to access it and right now there's not a lot of outside of going to private landowners that own you know, hundreds or thousands of acres, 
it's up to that individual landowner to be convinced, hey, it's time for me to put up my white oak for for sale. And so that limits a lot of the supply, uh, creating these, you know, shortages and whether you're running out. But as a cooperage, do you do you plant trees also, or no. do you, or do you, or is that something? Because I know, like I've heard that some distilleries actually plant trees. Like it's they're like, not the most helpful. Yeah. So the problem it, <laughs> I, it's a I mean it's a it. great in theory it's a you know sounds great, but white oak is a very hardy hardwood, right. and it it regenerates on its own. So typically, tracts of timber that get you know that are exposed to wildfires, the first thing to regrow there is white oak. It doesn't even have to be naturally planted. It's it, it, it it's just itself. natural, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's got that hard acorn shell, and it's able to withstand a lot of, you know, whatever the elements throw at it. So uh, it's typically the first thing to regrow, and it it's very easy for as long as forests are properly maintained over time and responsibly managed the white oak can regenerate itself. It's all about if you can harvest the most mature white oak trees out of your maturing forests and allow the saplings underneath to come up underneath it and replace it, that's how generally responsible forest management so, works. So how old is a, a typical harvested tree for, for barrel use? Typically, it could be somewhere in between 60, 80 years old. Okay, oh, so wow. they're not cutting anything down that's eight, 18 or 20 oh, or so. Oh, absolutely not. Okay. No, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be large enough to even harvest. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That's crazy. There is a barrel cooperage convention every year, and the White Oak Initiative is really big on, like, forest management and responsibly harvesting. And it's, yeah. you know, all the cooperages get together and the suppliers, and they talk about these issues. And so they were there presenting a couple months ago about this and they were like we need to harvest like you need to have landowners know they need to harvest the big trees the ones that are fully mature because the canopy is so big right the way the other trees can come up there are enough trees they just aren't being like harvested as they should that makes perfectly good sense and they're like looking at like it's like we don't change anything like we're not going to have the trees at the rate that we're going but it's not because they're not growing it's because you have to cut them down so sunlight and resources can get to the other trees and grow so i I'm also with your wife. I love like trees and the White Oak Initiative and yeah. you know all the Pocahontas things. Yeah, <laughs> my, my my wife is such a hippie in some capacity, yeah, which yeah. I, I love that about her. But the it's tree's going to die if you don't use it, right? Yeah, so, it will die. It will fall over and die. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's you know, quick other point is that, for example, like your Hoosier National Forest or Daniel Boone National Forest, these uh, federally owned uh, forests that. There's no, like, for example, in France, you can, uh, there's X amount of trees that can be harvested every year and they take the most mature and they manage those federally owned forests. Whereas in America, you're not able to do that. Those trees and forests just keep keep on, keep growing, yeah, keep on aging and they will eventually just die of old age. So, uh, it would be nice to be able to have access to forests like that. So there could be a proper management. Right. So in that situation though, and, and, and once again, I'm ignorant to this, right? Like, how do you go in? I mean, like you said, you basically have to cut a track, right? Like, you'd have to cut six, eight, ten acres at a time, you know? So you're going to lose maple trees and all the other stuff that's in that area as well, right? Yeah, it, for the for the most part, um, that's that's pretty common. Right. 
Okay. Do they resell? I mean, they sell those. Well, they sell that for other things, right? I mean, paper or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I could go to mixed hardwood uh, market and get individually sorted out from there. So, I mean, you just don't think about that most of the time. You don't. You don't understand it from a holistic. But but you do have to think about it from a from a sustainability issue. You do, but you but people just don't. They don't. With the bourbon boom, there's a lot more to think about than just like I love barrels and I like love working in used barrels because you can extend the life of a barrel. Like when that tree gets cut down that barrel can live for another 80 years it can right. go to bourbon it can go to scotch it can go here it can go there like you can recycle it and then make it into a pretty planter like it and then once that planter falls apart it goes back to the earth um but with like the bourbon boom and the amount of like grain and like you know like chemicals not chemicals like what am i like but by can't. byproducts of right. making this and like sure. the resources that we're using all in the same area, the water, like Barstown doesn't have enough like water for any more distilleries to come like, well, we can't provide a distillery with that much water. So like we're capped out at distilleries here. Like there's, and we m- love Kentucky bourbon. We have plenty of water on, in Indiana. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh that's that's why they're like, go over there. And no, absolutely. <laughs> that's why some of these like rural areas, like, you know, Elizabethtown is starting to be developed. You have the yep. whiskey house over there. Like hopefully like all these towns will get more distilleries so there's a lot more like going on as far as like thinking about sustainability too. That's crazy. Absolutely. Hmm. So what's, what's the favorite part of your job? Zach loves his job. He loves barrels more than anybody that I've ever met. <laughs> For me, uh, my, my passion is mostly on the stave milling side. I think, you know, being able to really take that white oak log, get the most yield out of it as possible, figure out how, how to mill it is efficiently as possible uh, i think it's really important uh Mm -hmm. you know to the sustainability standpoint there's a lot of stave mills and cooperages that allow a lot of waste and you know if you can get the most out of your white oak tree it goes the furthest for you over in the cooperage so um that's where it all starts and if you if you don't have control over the very beginning stages of how that barrel becomes a barrel you know it there's a lot that you lose out on. Right. Is a lot of that manually done still? Oh I mean, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's unfortunately we're not at the point where you can like just take a log and it spits out a barrel at the end. I wish push what, a button. What, yeah. I, I Okay. So <laughs> let, let me, let me, I guess rephrase it. So like how much like hands on, like I'm assuming like, and I've just seen, I've seen videos and I have no idea if it's a cooperage that they're doing this, like, but they literally drop a log onto a thing. They kind of peel the bark off and yeah, get it yeah. to where it's somewhat a certain space. And then it gets shoved down to the line. Right. And then somebody else pushes it to this and they do that. So is, is there that many hands touching it in that situation? Or do you guys have a, a system like that? And then basically it goes to a place where they cut them in like long giant sheets or whatever. So for us, we are still relatively, uh, we do have a good solid crew of people that are working so we don't have a the level of automation of say you know a brown foreman or one of sazerac's sawmills um but you can still achieve a lot of the same efficiencies and i think by having a little bit more human interaction with the log and the uh individual cut up parts that you can make some decisions to really maximize your yield in certain situations so yeah, we're doing the same thing. You have to cut the log into quarters and cut it down to proper thickness, remove any of the defects. Yeah. And he goes, like, they have their own stave mill, but he goes every week on the outside and, like, buys staves. And has been training for several years with someone to do that. 
to like look at the staves that have already been cut and like find the defects and like note percentage that he can use and then like buy those staves based on that percentage. That's interesting. That's I mean, so like looking at the wood and being like, how much can I get out of this and how much is it worth? Right. Hmm. So I did hear um, that in a foreign country, not here, they have a fully automated Kubridge that's obviously closed off to the public. It's experimental right now, but it's fully automated. There's one person that runs it. Does it work? Brown Foreman tried to do that one time. I think, remember? I don't know. I remember like that was a rumor a long not, time ago. I don't ago. think it's Brown Foreman. No, I know. Not here, you said. What but. do you think about that? Because I think it's really weird because it's such a hands-on industry and it's such a hands-on specific product that this one Cooper, and I, I don't know any products that come out of it, but I just know that there is <laughs> a fully automated system. That does it from start to finish, builds a barrel. So before Zach answers, I'm like, how's that even possible? Because like I've seen when the videos of people making barrels, like they're literally throwing staves into those rings to get it to where. Like, I don't know. I haven't but, seen. But it. go ahead, man. An AI cooperage. <laughs> no, that's that's basically what it was described to me as. Is there's this one person, one or two people that like make sure that it doesn't blow up, and from start to finish, it's fully automated. I think it'd be an awesome concept and you know, maybe eventually we can get to that point, but I think there's a lot of, a lot of, there's a lot that goes into it along each individual step that I don't think you can necessarily fully automate out, but, uh, like can a computer catch like, that's what I mean. Like holes or like green. Oh yeah. They're doing that already. Yeah. Um, but I wonder like the quality of it that comes out of it, if it would be close to being the same, I don't even, I don't even know. I'd like to know. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, eventually that's probably the Road direction. Trip. Yeah. yeah, let's go. That's we, the goal. We're going to take an airplane. <laughs> yeah, it's, just be you running a Hoopers by yourself. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's very difficult to get labor. It's, you know, not easy work. It's a lot of, uh, very hard manual labor yeah. that goes into most Cooperages. So, uh, the more automation that they're, is that becomes available i think is absolutely uh a benefit in order to reach everybody's you know goals um yeah no for sure but yeah i think i think it's a novel idea probably still it's only a billion dollar cooperage right who cares <laughs> so do you can't imagine do you cooper anything other than oak um we do different types of white oak but all of it is white oak gotcha uh, we'll experiment around with so we've got a uh, you know, your standard Quercus Alba is what all of our standard barrels are. And then we also have a chinkapin program, which is a specific subspecies of white oak. And that kind of has some more uh, different taste profiles. And uh, we work with a handful of distillers that are really trying to create something unique. And they'll use that. I tried a chinkapin barrel one time. That is just such a funny name. There's and I'm really glad that I didn't butcher it while I said that. Yeah. Chinkapin huh. Oak. So I've, I've, only, I've only tried it. I've only knowingly tried oh, it yes, one same. time, I guess. Yeah. So, so how many different white oak varieties are there in the United States? Oh, there's, I mean, there's, there's a handful of different subspecies. Um, honestly, I couldn't tell you an exact number, but, you know, there's. Well, it's a good Jeopardy question. I mean, Ten more. Probably, yeah, there could be, you know. 10 or so, but you know, like pin oak or, uh, you know, there's chestnut oak, but 
you know, there's also different types of oaks that are not capable of holding and being watertight. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So I would have never which, thought about that. Yeah. So like red oak is different from the white oak species, but right. red oak, it actually... Too porous, yeah. Yeah, it's too porous, so it doesn't have the tyloses. Yeah. Those are the individual... Strands, yeah. Cell yeah. barriers that don't allow... That's super interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why white oak was so prevalently used and they didn't use a whole lot of other wood was because of that. Like they just kind of realized that it wasn't as porous as the other woods and that's how it kind of became the thing that it is today. So, so what's your opinion on French oak versus American and Hungarian and you know, all those type of things I don't know if you've worked with all of them or not, but like, do you have an opinion on what, what, what's your favorite or what do you think or outside of American oak, obviously? Sure. Um, we've been, We've been in the process of trying to experiment around with some of it. Personally, I haven't worked with French oak or Hungarian oak at this point, but that's definitely um, some future projects that will be upcoming. But I think there's a lot that could be offered. I think you can get a lot of really unique flavors. You know, there's really good access to white oak that's, you know, all across the world the world i mean we were just talking about that there was uh somebody that was using colombian oak and yeah i had to write um canton and be like did you ever make because a lot of like when the last barrel shortage happened eight years ago or so they were just using whatever they could use you know like let's just keep using and there was a colombian oak that came from that from an mgp barrel yeah and i like wrote canton i'm like did you have a colombian oak and they're like we did use that. I'm like, are you still using it? Is it for sale? They're like, no, we don't still use it. We can ask. And I'm like, that's okay. Um, but it was just super interesting. Well, yeah, there's there's white oak varieties all over the world, right? So, but I mean, it's just weird that you, when you start seeing those things, like I said, the Hungarian, the French, you know. Um, what? Uh, yeah, there's Mongolian Mon- oak. Yeah. Um, but that's what's really interesting. And kind of going back to our, you know, initial conversation, each region, you get all the minerals and you really get to extract different profiles from each of those different regions. So, you know, there's different minerals in different soils here in Kentucky. We're sitting on a lot of limestone. So limestone's one of those primary minerals that, uh, the white oak's able to absorb out of the soil. Yeah. It makes for really unique profiles. I think it's something that you'll continue to see cooperages and distillers experiment with and try to get whatever unique profiles, there are out there in the world. Gotcha. What, what am I missing? Is, is there something else that like people need to know about barrels or how they're made or, you know, the process that, that you think that is unique that maybe they don't understand and what goes into making that? Yeah. I mean, there one, one aspect of making a barrel that probably isn't well known about to the general public, uh, air seasoning is really, really important, uh, from a, biology standpoint, you're getting a lot of breakdown of your tannins and acids in the white oak. So when you cut a stave that's fresh from the stave mill, you know, right after you cut up the log, there's so much moisture and uh, tannins and acids built up in that it's so necessary to set it outside and be able to leach out all those, you know, astringent flavors out and you get the elements working in your favor, the sunlight, microbes on the exterior, breaking down um, different chemicals. 
So and much. yeah, it's just it's a big chemical reaction, really. So well, that's I, the air I, season. I just yeah, exactly. Of, and I just thought of something. So are there distillers using kiln drying? Yeah, yeah. So most people are doing a air season for however many months for a standard barrel. Generally, you see it between three to nine months. And because right now you really can't do it a whole lot longer with the demand of barrels. Gotcha. Okay. That, and that's, that's There's why like I thought it was so, a good question. So and it will vary from, yeah. yeah, it varies from cooperage to cooperage. Yeah. Cause, Cause I'm starting to see a lot more kiln dry stuff just in general. Like oh, yeah, uh, we, yeah. we, we they, were, we're doing some remodeling at our house and like outside, like we had, we were ordering, um, cedar, but it had to be kiln dry in order for it to it have a certain, yeah. So, after, okay. After they break gotcha. it in. I okay. can tell the days that Zach is in the kiln because he'll come home and he's like black. Like he's got black soot all over him. I'm like, where are you going to kiln today? <laughs> you, you smell all kilny and charry. Yeah, well, every day he comes home, he smells like American oak. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Jack, well, okay, Jack, but just, well, Zach wait. just oozes wood. Well, no, when we, <laughs> when we first started dating, he was like, you know, like the smell of American oak. And I'm like, nope. Now don't know what American oak fresh smells like. I have that cologne. He's like, on just American wait. Oak. But, <laughs> but now I do. Works, now right? I'm like, oh, he smells like American oak. <laughs> just, just wait. Yeah, now I know. I'm like, that's American oak. But that's... the days you're in the kiln, you're like dirty. Yeah, and the kiln, the kiln drying process. So that's what brings everything down to a neutral or you know all level uh, moisture content level. So you can process it, work it, mill it down. So you don't break it. So it's not green. Well, that's the thing. I just assumed they would all have to be, but then again, we always heard air dry. So I'm like, well, maybe they don't kill it at all because I just thought because of, uh, the, the fact that there's a possibility of wood burn creatures or things like that. Like I was like, wouldn't you have to kill it to make sure that you don't get that kind of stuff into the whiskey or into the barrel? You have to kill it, right? Um, do some people not? It depends on how long it's been air season. I mean, right. uh, it'll get dry enough depending on the climate outside, time of year. I mean, if you have something sitting outside for two years, it's plenty dry. It can, you yeah. know, as long as it's not surface moisture wet from rain recently, it's it's ready to go. You can gotcha. just take okay. that straight to the cooperage. So, like I said, I like I just made an assumption. Like I was like, well, I don't know. I've never been to a Cooper's. Yeah. <laughs> only only Cooper's I've ever been into is when you go to the distilleries and they're like, oh, look at this. This is our little makeshift Cooper's oh, here. Like so old you're, you're like Old Forester, right? Forester's only like, like Old Forester. It's yeah. like Bob the Builder. They're like, yeah. look at this orange, beautiful equipment. It's never ever now, ever. Now been push the button. Push the, the flame button. comes up. Yeah. And you go to like a real Cooper's and it's like, I can't breathe. There's salt yeah. dust every freaking <laughs> where. It's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I that guy start that fire. Did he fart on it. Mm-hmm. What? <laughs> So, I, it's, well, they show the toasting, and then they show this, and then they... <laughs> I love that, though. I think Old Forester is the one place downtown that you can go and see the whole process from no, start 100%. to finish. Like the bottling. It's they have very, the It is a, a no one, version of it, which is well, nice. Exactly, because if you are downtown and you want to go to a distillery and you're not trying to travel everywhere, like, you can see everything from start to bottling, you know? It is nice. It is nice. It's I a little, know. like... Yeah, it's a nice offer. Wiki, wiki. It probably is my favorite tour for that reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree. absolutely. You know, and people always say, well, you're just saying that because you're just a big old folk fan. I'm a big you old folk fan. I'm like, well, I'm a big old folk fan. But I'm, I'm not, a huge old yeah. fan. But I mean, there, there's something about like being, like you said, being able to see it from, you know, start to finish. Whereas if you go to Buffalo Trace, it's just a different experience, right? You, the, the history and the heritage, you feel like is there. Oh, I love every and distillery it's a little for dirty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, um, you know. where's the one that's real longer. clinical? I, is it Heaven Hill? The the new experience out of Heaven Hill is like just feels a little more clinical than it used to. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I don't know. I mean, it's it's like you have to think with the, the mass amounts of people. Like I used to love Heaven Hill because it was just like country people being like, hey, let's do this, let's do that. Right. But it has to be like to accommodate everyone. It has to be like kind of clinical. Yeah, I hear you. Well, good deal. So, Zach, we, we greatly appreciate the time we got to spend with you. If people want to, you know, ask you a question or are they allowed to ask you a question, you no, want to give them an Jessica. email? Ask or, me. I was going to say, you can ask me. Like, if, if, if people want to contact you or ask additional information, do you want them to send it through me or do you have an email or something that you want people to ask questions on or things like that? Because I'm sure we missed something. I mean, like, it's just such an, I don't know, we an awesome institution. Lot. So Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, of course, they can always go straight through you. Uh, they're always welcome to visit our website. I've got a contact page that has my email, office phone number, and a contact submission form. Um, what's the email? I mean, what's the website address? Uh, ZAKCooperage.com. Okay. www. Yeah. www.zakcooperage.com. <laughs> Z-A-K. We're on the World Wide Web. <laughs> Zach does have an Instagram. The, the, yeah, that you manage. I do not manage no. Instagram. <laughs> he ha- no. There are no posts on there. <laughs> <laughs> You're on them interwebs, buddy. He would respond. Yeah. Um, yeah, you would respond. But, but I will say he's very, very, very busy. And so if somebody's like, I want to do a tour, like probably not going to get back to you. And not because he doesn't want to, but he's I, I will say I, I, about... Four years ago when we started this, Alan Bishop said, you need to go out to Zach Cooperage and you need to talk to those dudes to find out about barrels. And I did send a message like three different times. Like, I mean, but it might have like, been it might have been through Facebook. I don't, I don't remember like how I sent the message, but like, I know I remember sending a message. I want to come out and I would just want to interview you to talk about barrels and like <laughs> crickets. Uh, <laughs> sorry, buddy. Um, I do apologize for it's, that. It's, it's, <laughs> I just figured you were just too busy. You've I mean, made like, up it for it. And that's, the, and that's the thing with anything like this. And you know, that it's, it's the good thing that I've been in the industry long enough that you start meeting great people and you meet people like Jess and they know you and the, the, yeah. it becomes like a big happy family is yeah. what I tell people. And that's, that's been the good thing about the podcast just in general is that everybody knows everybody. At some I'm very point. good at filtering out messages. So if you want to write me on bourbon insider, I will get a message to Zach if it, Bourbon Insider, and that's your Instagram. That's my right? socials your everywhere. Social, okay. Bourbon Insider. I will. She does the, a fantastic job describing barrels and all kinds of stuff. On well, there. I just so mean she's, like I can yeah. get to the man here. Yeah. No, hundred percent. Yeah, but, but I <laughs> feel like you, give, you give good content just in general, as yeah. far as like just you talk about barrels, you right. talk about whiskey, you talk about this, you talk about the tourism piece. Like I've seen you just talk about different things. So yeah. it is a definitely a good one. So we appreciate that. So. We have seen you talk about many things. Yeah, I correct. will talk, talk, talk. I like don't always do it because I'm like I don't know what people. I'm all over the place. I'm like, do we want to talk about barrels, tourism? But the bourbon industry is my life, and that's really all I know. So fair that's enough. fair. Well, Zach, thanks so much for coming on the show. If Appreciate you want to find it. Bourbon Barrel Talk, you can find us on Instagram, the Facebook, or the Twitter slash X, slash X. whatever they want to call it these days. Um, if you want to get our episodes, make sure you go to wherever it, your favorite medium is, whether it's iHeartRadio, Google Podcast, iTunes, whatever. Make sure you hit the subscribe button, and you can find us there. If you want to send us that question, instead of bothering Zach, you can call us first or email us first at bourbonrealtalk at gmail.com. This is Scott, Zach, Jess, and Matt signing off. Peace. Cheers.